0: Living Philosophy explores the inspiring second lives of people who have successfully made profound changes to their careers and lives through self-reflection, insight, and practice. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophy ucom your hotspot for public and applied philosophy in the workplace, your headspace, and your living space. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed our past episodes, please take the time to rate and review our podcast. Help spread the word. Help spread Living Philosophy. I'm your host, Dr. Todd May. For this episode, we're going a bit folksy. Just have a listen. The music you just heard is a piece called Mississippi Sawyer and was performed by my guest for this episode, the musician Kat Bachelor. Kat is a professional violinist as well as a qualified violin teacher in the United Kingdom. She's also a graduate from Cardiff University, where she did a final year project on busking and street performance for her musicology degree. I'm sure she'll have more to say about that. At the age of 25, Kat is one of our youngest guests so far on this podcast, but don't let her youth fool you. And so instead of an inspiring second life, we're going to hear about Kat's inspiring first life. When she plays the fiddle or the violin and even the double bass, well, her music speaks for itself. Kat, welcome to Living Philosophy.
1: Hello, thanks very much.
0: So take us back to when you first learned how to play an instrument. As a kid, I can remember my friends saying they were being pressured by their parents to play instruments, especially if you're of an Asian-American background. So playing an instrument, playing music, was it something you've naturally found interesting or was it a forced labour of love?
1: This is an interesting one. I get this a lot. It's quite a funny story actually from when I was very little because my parents aren't particularly musical at all. And it started when I think apparently even Before I could talk and mum would put music on to try and get me to go to sleep and I'd just sit up and start paying attention. I was just always very interested in music or any live music that we saw or were walking past. And so when I got to three or four, my parents just took me to the local music group, you know, sort of aimed at beginner children. And it happened that the instrument most of them were learning was violin. And so I picked up a violin and um, yeah, didn't really look back.
0: That sounds pretty advanced because even as a student in junior high school I remember taking my first music class and of course the first instrument they will give a student is the recorder which is kind of difficult to I suppose it's difficult to mess up I suppose easier to learn and you learn how to play some basic uh, chords I guess on it and so it it seems like an easy introduction of violin as the first instrument so was that something that you picked up very quickly? Or was there this growing period where when you would play in the household, your parents would sort of say, uh-oh, Kat's learning how to play the violin. Uh, she'll get there eventually. She's making a lot of squeaking sounds. But um, yeah, you know, let's let's encourage her.
1: That is another story that we've got from around the same time, I believe, within the year after they'd decided they were going to take me to um, beginner violin classes, when I was so excited to experiment with the sounds I could make on the violin I decided I was going to practice at 4am and well, not, yeah, I was 4 or 5 and I went straight up to my parents room to show them the new sound I'd worked out how to make and mum says she's still to this day Remembers waking up in the middle of the night, absolutely terrified, because she thought someone had broken in and was trying to kidnap her children, <laughs> and because it, it was such a horrible squeaking noise. Apparently,
0: so four and five. Where was? Do you recall if that was an average age for the music group, or that seems quite young to me? But maybe you know, I'm not, I'm not a parent, so I, I don't know. But that seems remarkably young. I can't remember doing anything at the age of four or five when I was growing up, let alone play a musical instrument.
1: You're not playing pieces straight away, and so a lot of. Beginner technique is about working out how to. You'll start off by holding the violin as a guitar, and you know you'll you'll pluck the strings one at a time, and you do all kinds of games to make that as interesting as possible. I learned about this when I did my teaching diploma. There are some quite big advantages to starting learning a string instrument very young because it means you'll develop the muscle memory very early, and so then it once once you've learned it, it's harder to forget. On the other hand it does take a lot of practice and it is quite easy to lose interest. And so, I mean, our, our teacher would alternate between, you know, we'd do a bit of violin and then we'd do some percussion games. So then, then you're learning your rhythmic skills as well, while you're still learning the violin strings. So, so yeah, we, we were all sort of aged four, four or five was about the average age of the group.
0: And growing with the violin, how many hours a week did you practice? Was it um, something just insane or was it, did you have a more of a, I suppose a laid-back approach, and tried not to make it too much of, I guess, a task to have to get through.
1: I did sometimes have to be, although I gravitated to music sort of of my own volition. There were there are always going to be days when you sort of need external motivation to practice, as it were. It is really something you need to practice every day; otherwise, you you will lose the muscle memory um, unfairly quickly. Frankly, during sort of primary school. I think I was practicing between half an hour to an hour a day when I hit secondary school or um, the the thing is, as you hit the higher grades or the higher level on a violin, and that's when you start doing maybe a couple or three hours a day. Yeah. at, At least an hour a day.
0: One of the things I love about practice oriented things like sports and music is you have, as a practitioner, as a player, as a musician, there there's these aha moments that happen when you recognize that you've stepped up to the next level or maybe even stepped up a few levels and you can just reflect back and think oh my gosh I can't believe this has happened. So were there any aha moments like that for you when you were playing and suddenly you got a piece that was difficult for you to get or uh, you you just sounded differently on the violin that you felt that your technique and your performance the quality of performance had just raised so much that you had crossed the threshold.
1: I think the best example I can think of that is after I'd sort of gone through university and I'd made the switch to folk fiddle rather than classical violin, which is what I was originally trained to do. I remember hearing a recording from when I'd just started playing with a folk band and I didn't really know what I was doing. And then it was just a recording of the same piece a couple of years later and it was just so much faster and you could hear where the beat was and you could hear, you know, how to dance to it.
0: That was Cat Bachelor performing a song called "Kilro," and the switch from classical to folk. So I have a few friends who are quite classical music snobs, I guess you could say, and they really think that any other kind of music, even you know jazz music, it's kind of they have a love hate relationship with jazz. They don't like it as a music, but they respect it because it's technically difficult, that kind of thing. But they're very much of the idea that classical music is really the only kind of music to listen to and I have to meet musicians who are trained classically and they don't they're not so exclusive like that in fact they like a lot of different kinds of music i suppose it's exposing them to different genres and styles and helping with their musical sensibility and development and their their musical intelligence as it were or iq so can you say a little bit more reflecting on your life especially growing up you know as a teenager being exposed to I can't even think of what kind of music might have been popular at the time because it's all blurred to me. But I suppose if it's the '80s or, or '90s kinds kinds of music or whatever it might be, and it, was there any kind of tension between the music that you liked, the music you were expected to play, and was that a kind of tension that informed your switch from classical violin to the the folk fiddle?
1: I do actually have memories of people talking about you know the pop music and everything that was you know popular at the time and. I was just sat there, you know, worried about my violin scales and the pieces I was learning at the time. Sort of the early switch to folk fiddle, I suppose it did actually happen earlier in a way, because I knew a lot of the pieces because my violin teacher taught them to me, but I, I was still learning with classical technique. The big reason where I switched to folk fiddle or the aspect of classical music or more technically classical performance that i didn't particularly get on with i really never liked the fact that the audience just has to sit there and not interact i really liked the music that wasn't the issue but yeah it's because the audience just sort of had to sit there in total silence until the end of the piece incidentally when Mozart's works were first performed the audience would have been sort of clapping when there was a solo that they really liked or it was designed to be a lot more interactive originally, or written to be a lot more interactive. And it was when I was in uni, and I just started busking between, you know, everything else. And I worked out quite quickly that the folk tunes went down much better. And so I quite quickly, you know, got found by a local folk band called Fiddler's Elbow, and started doing a Different sort of performance circuit, and I quite quickly realised I I really liked the fact that the audience would get up and clap along, or dance along, and sing along with you. So that was sort of how the style change happened originally.
0: That's an interesting point about the kind of etiquette and expectations of audience in a classical performance. I do remember in high school being at a classical performance, probably my first one. Someone started clapping, so I started clapping. You know how that works. He's like, oh, I I supposed to clap, and then I was. Someone next to me said, oh, you know don't clap now. It's the wrong time to clap. And because I was clapping at the wrong time, that only shows up my ignorance and you know that kind of thing. Um, but I, I was also thinking philosophically since I, I used to teach aesthetics, but I didn't do music so much. And for a lot of different reasons. One, I'm not very musical. I don't know too much about music theory, but I do recall reading some philosophical historical accounts of what you're talking about. So originally that classical music or what we tend to call classical music, it was interactive historically at the time, but there's something that changed where, and I think the way philosophers like to describe that this kind of changes, and I don't know how accurate it is. It, it's kind of convincing at a theoretical level, but the kind of philosophy that starts coming around the time of Mozart, which has effects afterwards is this idea of the appreciation of something aesthetic or artful or musical is going to involve detachment Mm -hmm. and this comes a lot from Kant's theory of, of aesthetics but there's this idea that in order to be cultivated we become detached from the experience so we can both experience it and analyze it at the same time and appreciate it for what is happening and there's this other idea that if we're moved from the piece of art or the music from the outside and we let it take us over, somehow that's less refined. So you get this kind of these philosophical distinctions that arise. And I think very much the 20th century, we we inherit these ideas and we think that they're original historically. So it is kind of bizarre and perhaps it would be interesting to think about the to theorize or hypothesize the way in which audiences might've been interacting with Music and I suppose a parallel will be with Shakespeare plays. We often think we go to a play to refine cultural experience, but of course, at the time of Shakespeare, as we know from the the wonderful recreation of the Globe, New Globe Theatre on the the south side of the bank, you know it, it brings to life. You can be a groundling, you can be standing there, you can be interacting with with the characters so much. So a great distinction there. The transition you made, if you remember it all, you know practicing so much, and then getting your technique refined, but then suddenly you're at a moment where you're expected to play before a, a significantly large audience. And from my own experience, I can just, there's, there's always, you feel confidence when you're practicing like, okay, I got this dial, But then suddenly when you're in the gaze of other people who are looking at you, there's this kind of, the way I described it is there's a small chasm that opens up and that small chasm is of a lack of total confidence in yourself. So can you say anything about your experience of having to make that transition of playing to playing before a large audience and the kinds of pressure that puts on people? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is we get a lot of audience members who are interested in the problem of public speaking and performing before the public. So I don't know if you have any practical advice for for those kinds of situations.
1: This is actually an interesting one. I can't help out too much here because I've never really had stage fright. I I never really got um performance nerves. It wasn't so it wasn't ever something I and I think because I started learning so young and because, you know, even with the four year old music school, they made sure we did a performance at the end of every season or whatever. And, you know, that continued through school. I went to quite a musical school. So I think I think it helps and I, I have heard a couple of teachers say the same thing. It's during your teens that you learn to be scared of performance. You know, I can remember being very, very young and just always being really, really excited if I had a solo before the end of the year. Before you know, a room full of people, I just absolutely thrived under that. I just kept performing often enough, so I just, I just don't really get the stage nerves beforehand.
0: And when you teach your students, is this something that you've noticed that your confidence, or I don't know what you would call it, perhaps it's a talent or a gift, or this ability to be comfortable in the presence of others? Uh, is this something that you can teach to your students or is it something that you're not aware of and you're just teaching the love of music and hopefully it takes care of itself?
1: You can teach good practice habits because if you know your material very well, it's less likely to go wrong. You can teach sort of strategies for if it did go wrong in performance, you know, you just just pick it up and recover. People won't mind. And, you know, encourage people to perform to you can encourage your pupils to perform to you or to their parents, I suppose. I suppose for a more general sort of public speaking thing, find a friend who you can test your, you know, what you've got to say out on. I suppose that helps because, yeah, because it's just about, if you do it very regularly, it just becomes less less frightening.
0: Is it difficult to manage parents' expectations of their children when they're learning how to play an instrument? Is Do you notice? I imagine in America it's much different because I it seems like a parents in America tend to be much more vocal uh, about things, I guess it depends where in the country you are. And of course, what, what socioeconomic class the parents are, but I can just imagine Americans on the whole being a little bit more interactive with the teacher, both in a good and a bad way. And I, I guess recall coaching just even the local climbing team, uh, at a, at a gym when I used to run a gym and so, some of the parents are great and very supportive and other parents you can feel like they're, they're waiting for an opportunity to criticize you as the coach, because their child wasn't developing, as well as they had hoped, or as well in relation to the other student, or other other climbers, or whatever it might be, who had started climbing at the same time. So, any kind of positive stories or negative stories about having to work with the the mire of adults uh, that that occurs in extracurricular activities.
1: I always say with violin. I've only really taught on violin, so that's all I can really. Um comment on but it's like I was saying about starting to learn very young and there are a lot of advantages to that but there's also a lot of beginner technique that you need to do just in terms of holding the instrument a lot of people think it's sort of held up with your hand but it's it's actually sort of clamped between your shoulder and your chin you've got to learn how to do that before you can get your hand into place there is just nothing natural about what you have to do to hold the instrument and you've got to be extremely careful to sort of teach correct techniques so you don't cause problems later down the line you can be the most coordinated most gifted musical person ever but you've you've still just got to do a lot of repetition to build up the beginner technique it's quite an industry specific thing to understand to be fair but yeah a lot of parents want to know why their children aren't immediately playing pieces straight out of the gate You've just got to learn the foundational technique first. I have had a couple of victory moments when the parents have been getting, you know, either frustrated with me or frustrated with their children, telling them to go and, you know, just practice much more. And I have had a couple of victory moments of giving the parents the violin and going, well, can you do it then? Or, you know, just giving them the opportunity to try it out for themselves. And they appreciate the sort of muscle memory and everything that's got to go into it.
0: And it sounds like from your own experience, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you might want to carefully reflect on your comments, since this is going to be a question about your parents, and they'll they'll probably be listening to the podcast at some point or time, but it sounds like your parents were supportive in a good way. Uh, You went to school learning the violin, uh, secondary school or high school, as we like to say, in the United States, and then they supported you going to university and doing a degree in musicology, which I think a lot of parents might, well, maybe not a lot of parents, but I guess the cliched parent we often speak about as academics, you know, we have an open day at university and they're bringing their son or daughter to university to see if they want to go there. Uh, they always ask academic staff members, what kind of job or what kind of career can my student, my, my child get if they do a degree in philosophy and musicology. So it sounds like by virtue of being able to do musicology, your parents have been supportive. Or maybe you totally rebelled against them. You said, no, I'm going to do engineering, and then you secretly enrolled in a musicology class.
1: I mean, my dad does do electronic engineering, so maybe I should have done that. Though I suppose you'd have seen through it fairly quickly. I suppose it does help that my parents were both freelancers. They both worked in theatre when they met, so they, they understand how the industry works from that perspective. They have been very supportive right from the beginning. As I say, not being particularly musical themselves, they sort of looked at a very musical child and went, right, we'll take her to the local music group then. And um, yes, no, they've been very supportive of me going through a, a musical school and a music degree at uni.
0: So the next question has to do with sort of philosophical interests I have in, in music, especially comes from the ancient Greek tradition, particularly Plato, the way he talks about music in a very positive sense in some points and very negative sense in another and it's sort of the same reason it's positive, or there's the same reason why it's positive and negative. And it's because it's such a powerful medium. I'm sort of curious when I talk to guests who have who are musicians and talk to them on this podcast, I like to hear what their experiences are with music as this kind of medium. So past guests on the podcast, they often talk about the ways in which music creates a sense of space and time that enables them to relate to things and to other people differently. It's sort of like they become a different person Uh, Maybe it's in practice or maybe it's in the performance or something like that. So have you had any experiences like any profound experiences like that or anything that you can look back upon and think it would just be a great thing if people could experience this because they would appreciate something better or they would just see things in a different way that might help them broaden their uh, relationship to other people or to the world?
1: I think the closest I've had to that has been in practice. And again, I think it's because of the practice habits that you do every single day and the focus that's required. I, I suppose it is almost a bit like meditation, just the focus and the fact that you do it every single day if you know a couple of hours. And, yeah, and so sometimes if you're just getting very, very into a piece, I suppose that did happen more with the classical days because the, the pieces are essentially just longer spend longer sort of getting into them trying to unlock them whereas i think what is a lot more interesting with folk music is the it's like we were saying before is the live connection with the audience and you know and you're where it's a very different setup where you're you're trying to get everybody to interact and join in with you so actually that's another interesting reflection on the difference between classical and folk music because it i don't think it's even a matter of pitting them against one each other, I think they fulfill slightly different things. Yeah, I think classical is more sort of, classical music gives a more sort of medium to really get into and sort of reflect and it's harder to unlock, like we were just saying, and then and focus a lot more interactive and immediate.
0: The song, Wrexham Hornpipe, The Musician, Cap Bachelor. It seems like folk music just involves the body more. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah. classical music does in different ways. I'm just thinking about the way in which folk music just, you know, you, you hear the piece like we we heard at the beginning, and we'll be hearing more of your performances along in this podcast as well. But it it, it just awakens something and you, it makes you want to move. It makes you want to get up and do things. And are there any particular folk traditions that you find particularly influential or ones that just grabbed you right away. I'm thinking of when I first heard American bluegrass and, you know, I wasn't even in a bluegrass state. I was in the Midwest and in this, it was a sweltering summer in the Midwest. It gets very humid and walking into this bar that was almost subterranean and it was packed and there was a, a bluegrass band playing. I thought, you know, I'm from California. So I thought, oh my gosh, how far have I descended along the road to de evolution? What's going to happen? I can't believe I'm here. But then after listening to the first couple of songs, I, I not only appreciated the music, but I saw how friendly and enthused the audience was and how it just all revolved around a kind of music that I didn't think I would ever like. And yeah, I still like bluegrass to this day. So I'd, I imagine being uh, from Britain, there might be influences, Celtic influences, or am I wrong in thinking that?
1: No, nope, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's a lot of Celtic influences. There's a lot of overlap with bluegrass as well. we will be at a session unless it's you know, which is just a sort of group of musicians that will get together in a pub to just play tunes and teach each other tunes. And, you know, un- unless it's some sessions are very strict and they'll say, no, we only do traditional Welsh music, some will only do traditional Irish music. But yeah, a, a lot of the time there'll be lots of overlap and you'll play sort of, you know, Irish, Welsh and Scottish music and there'll often be a few bluegrass tunes in there. Sometimes because it's the same tune that's travelled across to America. Yeah, sometimes just because it's, it's a similar enough tune that it just works well in a set with some of the more local Celtic ones.
0: I have to ask about etiquette again, because I know we talked about classical uh, classical music etiquette. And when I would go to bluegrass performances and live bluegrass performances in the States, there would always be a point where someone would do the yee-haw and it would be an audience member. And it's sort of like clapping at the right time. So, you know, there was a point in the song where people would start yee-hawing and it worked really well. And I remember being in Britain and in in Whitstable, they had the yacht club had a bluegrass performer. Well, he was a folk folk uh, performer, and he did some bluegrass. And I, I'd started yeehawing, and everyone kind of looked at me like, well, you know, what's <laughs> going on? But the, the the musician either thought it was funny and appreciated, or appreciated because he thought it was appropriate. But um, judging by or gauging his facial expression, so are, are there any different kinds of funny? idiosyncratic etiquette between the different folk traditions, either from the point of view of the performance or the point of view of the audience.
1: I think there's another slight dynamic at play here. I now appreciate after having sort of lived and performed in Wales for quite a while, English audiences are absolutely notorious. They just don't interact or, you know, you'll you'll want them to sing along or you want them to clap along. And English audiences are just notorious for being very sort of, you know, quiet and, you know, and they'll, People will say, well, no, I was enjoying the performance, but yeah, if if you're the type of performer that likes a sort of immediate response, then England, especially Southeast England, audiences are just so sort of reserved. There's a lot of different dance traditions that often use the same music just because of how geographically close the countries and islands are. But broadly speaking, this is one of the things that I think is so brilliant is if you're playing a tune and you're playing it with a reasonably sort of strong downbeat, then You know, you'll see people who've never encountered the music before will be clapping along or tapping their feet or sometimes, you know, just getting up and doing a bit of a dance. And then if you're doing it very well, you know, yes, you'll get everyone clapping along and anybody who has actually learned a set dance to the tune will generally come up and make themselves known to you and start dancing. And that's just a really nice thing that happens. You know, it'll sometimes happen at a session at the pub. Sometimes it'll happen when you're out busking. You know, you'll be playing an Irish jig and anyone who's ever done any Irish dance will come along and start dancing down the street. It's fantastic.
0: That was Mason's Apron by Cat Batchelor. You're listening to Living Philosophy. And now, a word from our sponsors.
2: Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophy dot your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence.
3: Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, High Tech's best-known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today.
2: Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change the conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly open to everyone and free of charge to learn more about participating in these conversations please visit our website at www the letter h the letter i the letter n the letter r the letter l .org that's org.
0: and you've played in a variety of venues and we can talk about busking because i imagine busking is going to be i don't know if it's riskier but it's going to be a different experience i suppose expectation uh, than than what you might be doing in a, in a pub or another venue. And I wonder, do you ever have a problem when you're busking and people seem to just be ignoring you? I don't know if that happens with your music, but I see, you know, there's always a moment where you see a performer, whether they're busking or maybe they're performing at a festival and it's not quite, you know, it's the it's the it's the graveyard shift of the festival. And by that, I mean, it's the earliest part where not really a lot of people have showed up. And so they're kind of just playing to an empty room or an empty field. You know, other Things that go on with busking that you're concerned about, or uh, I think you mentioned in a previous conversation that engaging with the audience in a busking venue is is very different from what you might expect when you're performing at a pub.
1: Right into my dissertation topic, fantastic! It's very interesting. I always say with busking, it is fantastic performance training because you don't have a captive audience. You know, you, you haven't had anyone sort of marketing doing it for you, getting the audience in. People are just walking up and down the street. You know, they, they haven't come out to see a musical performance. They haven't come out to see you. They're on their way to do something else. And it's about performing and finding the music that is going to make people, you know, sort of stop in their day or on their way to whatever they're doing and pay attention to you. I worked out quite quickly that folk tunes were the best way to do that. Playing very fast is the best way to do it. And, you know, it helps if you sort of stamp your foot along and you want to try and get people engaged, but not too much because then you'll put them off and they run away. I'll often be playing and see people will be listening sort of round the corner and hiding just because just people get shy. The busking audience is a very different one. You've, you've sort of got to be ready for anything. As I say, sometimes people will come along and start dancing. Sometimes they'll stop and start clapping. And sometimes people will just, they just won't register you because they're on their way to do something else. And one thing that I do find very, very interesting, just in terms of sort of performance space and how you sort of create your own little stage as the performer, one of the things I do find very interesting, even if people are walking along and they're just not engaging with you at all, they will still they will still give you a little sort of three foot space, like they still won't go into your stage. And I do find that quite interesting. Overly
0: enthusiastic and pub is one thing. And then getting overly enthusiastic in a busking venue might be another because it might be the creepy guy who's tuned to the music and kind of refuses to leave. And because he's a little bit weird, it's putting everybody off from, from standing around, that kind of thing. And so can I ask you more about your dissertation in musicology? So, I, I, you know, I'm totally unfamiliar with how a dissertation might work in musicology. So in philosophy, we just expect students, I think, in most humanities disciplines um, they'll expect a student to have some kind of argument or insight about some particular question or problem so your, your dissertation was on musicology w- was it more of a collection of data type of dissertation or did you w- were you trying to offer hypothesis kind of thing and try to you know talk about your experience busking and interview people who are busking and try to come to some other kind of um, conclusion about some aspect of busking?
1: To be very technical, it was my ethnomusicology project. So it was an ethnography rather than actually a dissertation. And so eth- ethnomusicology is the study of music in society. And so I did my project on busking and performance space, and I did it from the perspective of an of an insider. You, t- you talk about that a lot with ethnography and ethnomusicology you know you have insiders and outsiders of a group and so i did it as an insider to sort of the world of busking i talked about my own experiences as a busker and how you watch the audiences because that's the other great thing about doing such regular performance after you know the material and you know your sort of performance technique you start audience watching i talked about just things that have happened when i've been out busking and I talked to lots of other people. I interviewed people and said, you know, when was when was the last time you saw a busker? When was the last time you stopped and paid attention to a busker? You know, when, when was the last time you donated?
0: When you were looking at audience members and the various experiences you had, were there any kind of classes or categories of people you could readily recognize, not just the way they were dressed, but how they interacted with the music or you or didn't interact uh, the way they're. Their body moved in relation to the musical space. Because I'm thinking there must be some subtle things going on. Even if people are trying to get from point A to point B and there's somebody busking along the way, th- there's got to be some kind of effect that registers on their body that they may not even be aware of. But music is such a powerful medium. I'm wondering if there's anything subtle that you picked up like that or were surprised by someone who looked like they might have been a bit stuffy or. A bit self concerned or self absorbed suddenly was transformed or translated by the uh, the the occurrence of someone busking in their presence.
1: I always think it's a fascinating thing. Some of the most interesting reactions to watch are from children, because they haven't learned what is the correct way to behave yet. They'll ju- they will just dance, and they will just come up and interact. There were a couple of very nice moments when there was you know, a couple of kids who were, you know, just at the end of their tethers and a couple of them were having temper tantrums and a couple of them stopped when they heard me playing, which was very nice. There's, okay, there's a fantastic story that I think I'm going to tell here. I was out playing, you know, just sort of stood on a street corner. It was next to, I don't know if roads work like this in America, sometimes in a little, if it's a relatively small street, there'll be a sort of, town centre and cars won't normally go down it, but they sometimes do. Yeah. So I I was standing on sort of this street corner, just playing a sort of very upbeat kind of Scottish jig. And I was sort of, you know, I was was doing a little sort of scan in my peripheral vision to see if I could see anyone standing there with a wallet. Because, you know, because then it's the strategy of sort of smile and make eye contact and they'll usually come and give you money. In my peripheral vision, I sort of noticed that a load of high-vis jackets had just walked past... And that somebody was doing a bit of a dance, and it took me a second for my brain to catch up and got and went. That was quite a lot of police jackets, and I turned and turned around, and to my other side there was a police van parked next to me, and the police were all kind of standing around this, standing around this guy. You know, was being, you know, he he was definitely being sort of herded into the back of the police van, and he had just stood stood on the steps and was just dancing along to the jig that I was playing and sort of dancing with enough confidence that I think he had actually learned the dance at one point. I think it was a very good example of just de-escalatory policing, but they were all just sort of stood around, just sort of nodding along and sort of tapping their feet, you know, and the moment just sort of continued, and I got to the end of the tune, and the guy went into the police van, and they shut the door and drove away. It was an absolute, just sort of, oh, on, on the sort of list of most eventful things that have happened when I've been busking, that's just sort of stuck as a as a highlight because it was it it really did sort of feel like I was soundtracking a film or something because it was just so strange you know like that doesn't happen in real life you know the the arrest was sort of interrupted so that the guy could have a little dance and then the tune finished and they drove away
0: that's an excellent incident because it just is a great advertisement for perhaps alternative policing where you have your each each police department has their vitalness or, or their, their folk I and mean, it won't work with all music but with their because some music exactly. is is aggressive but with folk there is something to it and so uh you introduce the music to just break up the tension and it'd be interesting to see how often it works but because it's it's sort of well if the person the perpetrator can sort of be at ease because of the music then and the police can be at ease uh very different. Policing technique than you might find in the United States, uh, which gets a lot of press. Obviously,
1: I am absolutely fascinated to know what that guy was being arrested for. You know, I I assume it wasn't sort of serial murder or.
0: On the topic of experiences, can you give an account of one of the best memorable experiences you've had because it was good, and then one of the most disappointing or dissatisfying experiences you've had as a performer?
1: One best moment. So I've I've got two. The first one was with. Fiddler's Elbow, one of the bands I'm in. It's sort of a folk band, sort of verging on folk rock. You know, so we will play sort of Saturday night pubs. We play match night, often, you know, the, the Six Nations, rugby. It's quite a lively sort of Saturday night crowd at the local pub normally. I remember the first time we performed the song Devil Went Down to Georgia live, which is a fantastic song. And it's sort of, even in a folk setting... Even in that kind of setting, there's not. It's one of fairly few songs where the fiddle gets to start it, and even a general audience will usually immediately recognise it from the first few notes. It's a sort of powerhouse of a song as well. You know, we, so obviously we have been practicing it for a long time because you know it's it's not one you can just sort of throw the chords together and just go for it. It, it takes a lot of putting together, and yes, we've been practicing it. And we we knew this was going to be the first time we did it live, and it's just such a great feeling uh, when you know you play the first few notes and the entire venue just starts screaming because they know what's coming. It's brilliant. That was a fantastic moment, both sort of as a both as, as a group, as a band, and yeah, just such a great audience interaction.
4: Okay, we're gonna sing a song on the time a devil wind Georgia because we got a mad fan field play
1: So over lockdown, I've been watching videos of Hilary Clug, who's an American dancer and player. So she does um, buck dancing and fiddle playing. I do Morris dancing and also clog dancing. Recently, I've learned how to start doing both at the same time, sort of playing the fiddle tunes and dancing at the same time. The side leader of my Morris dancing team taught me a solo jig that I've started um, you know, self-accompanying on violin while I'm dancing it, which I've been practising for a few months now. I've performed it for the first time a couple of weeks ago at a folk festival. I said at the beginning, I don't really get stage fright. I think this might be the first time ever I was actually really quite nervous before a performance just because there's a lot more that can go wrong when you're doing two things at once, essentially. And it went really well. It was just a a great, great moment because it was just so much more of a sort of coordination challenge.
0: I've seen footage of you on your uh, Facebook page where you're doing both at the same time. (laughs) I was really impressed. Gosh, that (laughs) looks extremely difficult because you not only have to be technically oriented with the instrument you're playing, but then it's going to require you to be a good dancer in some respect and remembering the steps, I suppose. But it's... That, that is very impressive. And, and hopefully audience members will click onto your Facebook page and to see some of the performances you're doing.
1: The Morris dance jig is the, um, it's the pinned It is very much the pinned video on my Facebook page at the minute, yeah.
0: And on the other end of things, what has been the most disappointing or least satisfactory experience you've had performing?
1: I always say most of the best things and most of the worst things that have happened in terms of live performance have been busking. Unfortunately, there have been one or two instances out busking when people have stolen money from my case i say this is one of the worst live performance moments it did actually turn into quite a good moment and again talking about when you're watching the whole street and you're watching the people that you know will come and engage with you positively sometimes people get a bit over enthusiastic even and you know because it sort of puts other people off approaching you and all of the people who just won't interact at all and it was this moment i was um busking with a friend from my kaylee band on this occasion and the you know group of teenagers just came up and, you know, the girl just took a handful of change from my case and, you know, just sort of looked at me like, oh, what are you gonna do about it? And started walking away. It was brilliant, because, you know, me and my friend we stopped playing and said, give it back. And the entire street got involved and just shamed them into putting the money back into my case. It was also just very interesting in terms of watching how the audience behaved. Cause the street full of people who were just registering, oh, there's a there's a busker there. But even if they weren't necessarily Actively engaging in the performance, but the sort of gradual realization that you know they'd these people had stolen from us, and the and yeah, and just just the whole whole street sort of got involved and went, "Come on, give it back."
0: I don't know if you can see it from the inside since you grew up in Britain, but being an American who lived in Britain for a while and having grown up in America, one of the main differences between the two cultures that I find is that Britain very much has a shame culture behind it. So if you do something that's not socially acceptable. You could very much be liable for shame. Whereas what would happen in America would be indignation. And there might be some indignation behind the shaming that goes on in Britain, but in America, it's more of you've done something wrong and you should be punished or pointed out. Whereas there's a different expectation in Britain. It's sort of, oi, you, you've done something wrong. You, you know, you shouldn't be doing that kind of thing. I'm just thinking of instances where I've seen people call people out, and instead of a fight breaking out, there has been a recognition of, okay, yeah, I am doing something that's not morally acceptable, and there's enough peer pressure from others looking on that that, that behavior stops. And so it's a very subtle difference, and if Americans don't understand what I'm talking about, they'll have to go to Britain and see you perform live at a pub and also perhaps experience a shaming moment in Britain. or. Hopefully not as a subject of shame, but as an observer of shame. That
1: is quite interesting because the way, yeah, because the way it sort of happened, it was. Oh, there, there were also kind of aspects to it that were incredibly sort of South Welsh. I think actually, it, it was quite interesting. They didn't even end up giving the money back to us directly. They they were too embarrassed. They sort of gave it to the people that had come up and confronted them directly, and just sort of walked away looking down. So yeah, I think it was, yeah, shame shame culture. I think you're right.
0: So Kat, do you have any current projects going on with your bands? I mean, how many bands are you in? What are their names? Are you on Spotify? Are you planning on releasing an album of any kind? Is Or are you, are you just content performing in local venues and traveling across to other, other parts of Britain to perform?
1: Yeah, so my bands, I'm in Fiddler's Elbow, as I've, meant, as I've mentioned, which is a sort of folk rock band. I absolutely love this, playing on the South Welsh pub circuit, sort of the Valleys pub circuit. We're sort of hoping we might get to Ireland at some point because a lot of what we do is Irish music. I'm also in a Kaylee band that started more recently and that's, yeah, Bun- Bunny Eye Kayleigh band, we're on Facebook. Yeah, so that's more of these instrumental dance music, you know, gen- generally played as fast as possible. And I've also recently started playing with a band called Dewdroppers. It's a lot of sort of the same repertoire and it's a bit more sort of chilled out and I think are on Spotify.
0: We've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests the two closing questions. And the first question, Kat, is, is there any one philosophy, philosopher, musician or artist that has been inspirational to the way you've lived your life and continue to do so?
1: I mentioned Hillary Klug earlier, yeah, who's just been a very big inspiration, partly because seeing videos of her playing and dancing at once is when I realized it was possible. And when it occurred to me, I was doing various different folk dance styles at that point. And also, you know, both as a musician and also in that context, you're sort of encouraged to go and try out the dances as well. So you understand how it fits together because it's a functional music form. Like it's the tunes designed to go with the dance. And yeah, and so and then after seeing videos of Hilary Clark playing and dancing, and it occurred to me that it was possible. And so I you know, started putting the practice hours into it. And you know, it, was, it was very much paid off, both in terms of the craft. And also, you know, you I've read and heard interviews with her, and she's just so dedicated and hardworking and driven with her practice habits, which is just absolutely what you need to be as a violinist or fiddle player and as a dancer, especially with the coordination of doing multiple things at once. Absolutely an inspiration.
0: The second question is, Kat, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience?
1: Gosh, no, I can't think of any. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think I have much good advice.
0: <laughs> Perhaps it's get out there, pick up an instrument and see what happens.
1: Absolutely. Yes, that's good one. Yep. Go and try an instrument. I highly recommend it. It's a very good thing to do. I think more people should play instruments.
0: I think I read somewhere that there, there was an uptake in people picking up instruments during the pandemic, during lockdown, which probably wasn't good things for their neighbours because they probably were not sounding quite exquisite uh, through the thin walls, as it were.
1: Actually, that is another thing, especially with violin. There is just no way you make a good sound as a beginner, unfortunately. But yeah, you've got to persevere through it. And yeah, just practice, practice, practice. I That's my passing wisdom. Just. Yep. Practice.
0: Kat Bachelor. thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. And we look forward to seeing you in the music space and the many different bands you play for and wish you the best of luck in your music career.
1: Thank you very much.
0: If you would like to know more about Kat's music and work, you can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please check out the podcast blurb information about Kat and links to our sponsors. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Philosophy to You, The Infinite Staircase, Transitioning Your Life, and hermeneutics in real life. If you would like to become a sponsor of Living Philosophy by making a donation, please get in touch with us via the philosophy2u.com website. This is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy and I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophical.